Listen, don't you imagine for a moment that because you're a Christian, you can sin when you want to sin, and our Father isn't going to discipline you. He will conduct yourselves in fear. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current study in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, titled, Not Even One. We're looking at what the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Christian church in Rome regarding the condition of the human heart. And today, as Tom continues to look at the depraved inner state of all individuals, apart from the transformative work of the Holy Spirit described in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, he'll examine the main reason for prevailing sin. You'll discover that even for believers, sin is still a very serious issue. But what do you do about it? And how should you respond to those who do not seem to care about their sin? Keep those questions in mind as we join Tom right now on The Word Unleashed. Those of you who are old enough, you remember that back in 1989, a company was launched, a clothing manufacturer, and the label of that clothing manufacturer was No Fear. T-shirts with that emblazoned across it were everywhere. It was a company really promoting uh, extreme sports, but the, the No Fear logo sort of surpassed that reality. It became a popular way for everyone, even those not engaged in extreme sports, to say, I will do whatever I choose to do because I fear nothing and I fear no one. No fear. That is an absolutely stupid slogan. <laughs> Sorry, parents, I, I don't know another word for it. The truth is, Whenever we puny human beings are confronted with anything that is truly great, it always produces a sense of fear. You understand this. If you have ever been caught in the middle of a tornado, if you've ever been in a hurricane, if you've ever been in the middle of, at the epicenter of an earthquake, if you've ever been in the middle of a vast ocean, you are overwhelmed with a sense of your own smallness and of fear. But the response of fear and awe produced by those created things is absolutely nothing compared to the human response that always comes when a a finite human being encounters the infinite God. How do people in Scripture respond when they encounter God? When they truly come face to face with God? Well, the, the Scriptures are filled with those responses. You have, of course, Moses in Exodus 3 where God tells him, don't come any closer You'll be incinerated. Instead, you better take the shoes off your feet because the ground on which you stand is holy ground. Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. 
You come to the New Testament, you see the same reality in Matthew chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. Peter, James, and John are at the the Mount of Transfiguration. They've just seen our Lord transfigured. And we read, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is God. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. John the Apostle, in his 90s, had walked with the Lord for many, many years on the Isle of Patmos. You remember he has a vision of the glorified Christ. His Lord, his Master, the one he walked with day in and day out for three and a half years. And in In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I was paralyzed with fear. I couldn't move. It is impossible to see a genuine display of the greatness of God and to fail to respond in fear. It's only when our view of God becomes eclipsed, either by our ignorance of the true God or by our sin, that we can encounter God and not be afraid. According to Paul's indictment of all humanity in Romans 3, that is exactly what has happened to us all. Our ignorance of the true God... And our sin has clouded our vision so that we think we can actually encounter the true and living God and everything will be fine. Paul says, this is the fruit of our sin. Look at Romans chapter 3 again. I'll read the paragraph we're studying beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. And their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now in these verses, as we learn, Paul summarizes and he proves to us from the scripture his indictment against all of humanity. He begins in verse 9 with the formal indictment of man and his depravity. And then in verses 10 through 18, he presents the biblical evidence of man's depravity. He introduces the biblical proof that all men are, in fact, under sin. The evidence begins in verse 10 with a summary, a summary of man's depravity. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. 
Paul then uses a string of Old Testament references to illustrate the depth of depravity, the extent to which it has affected us all. We have darkened minds. We have enslaved wills, verse 11 says. Verse 12, we exhibit rebellious lifestyles and sinful behavior. In verses 13 and 14, we demonstrate toxic speech. What comes out of our mouth destroys. And as we learned last time, toxic speech spills over into destructive relationships in verses 15 to 17. Tragically, the sin within our hearts leaks out and it infects and destroys all of the human relationships that we have. We noted last week that there are three reasons behind these destructive relationships, this destruction. There is within us, we noted in verse 15, a predisposition to violent anger. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Boy, is that right off the front page of our newspaper this morning. Their feet are swift to, to, to shed the blood of a creature made in the image of God for any reason, and sometimes even under the guise of religion, albeit false religion. There's a pattern of destroying relationships. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths. In other words, if you follow the path of a fallen human being in their wake, everywhere you look, you will see the debris of shattered and destroyed relationships. Verse 17, they have no perception of the path of peace. The path of peace they have not known. Not only do they fail to walk on a path that is peaceful and that leads to peace, they don't even know how to find it. So Paul lays out here then the biblical evidence for depravity in verses 10 through 18. We have seen in verse 10 a summary of depravity, and we have seen in verses 11 to 17 the depth of depravity, but we still haven't reached the bottom. We still have not arrived at ground zero. But that's exactly where Paul takes us this morning to what we could call the foundation of depravity. The foundation of depravity. You see, if, if we attempt to dig down to what lies behind human sinfulness, behind our own sin apart from Christ, if we try to discern how creatures that depend entirely upon their Creator for everything still deny his existence, use his name as a curse, become openly antagonistic to him. Or in other cases, as we learned in Romans 1, even though they know so much about God from creation and conscience and providence, instead of worshiping the true God, instead they create their own gods and they fall down in front of a rock or a block of wood or something else. Or other people do neither of those first two. Instead, they simply ignore God. You realize that nine out of ten people on this planet believe in a supreme being, but most of them live as though that supreme being did not exist. They sin with impunity, without fear of punishment. Some grow up in Christian homes and sit in Christian churches like this one, and they hear the gospel again and again and again, and they refuse to accept God's offer of mercy and grace. Now, why? Why would mankind respond this way or in these ways to its creator? 
Paul says there is only one reason. When you really dig to the very bottom, what you will find in verse 18 is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's ground zero. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here is the root cause, the basic reason, the primary source behind all other sins. Now Paul quotes this verse from Psalm 36, verse 1, Psalm of David. I won't take you back to Psalm 36, but it's interesting. The Hebrew of verse 1 of Psalm 36 is a little difficult to understand, but literally it reads like this. An oracle of transgression regarding the wicked is in the midst of my heart. What David is saying is this. He says, when I reflect in my own heart about the wickedness of sinners, the transgression of sinners, I can only conclude that there's one explanation. It's because they don't fear God. Now, he specifically says, notice Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Why does he refer to the eyes? You know, in this passage, he's talked about various parts of the body, our lips and our throat and and other parts of the human anatomy. And here he, he speaks of the eyes. And he refers to the eyes in reference to this because the eyes have to do with what directs our steps. You look where you're going and you choose to walk in where your eyes look. You see the connection. What David is saying is that a legitimate fear of God has absolutely no place in directing the steps of our lives. None at all. We may be philosophical atheists, we may be practical atheists, but regardless, for all sinful mankind, God is simply left out of the life. A fear of him doesn't direct our course at all. John Murray writes, The fear of God is appropriately expressed as before our eyes because the fear of God means that God is constantly in the center of our thought and apprehension. And life is characterized by the all-pervasive consciousness of dependence upon him and responsibility to him. The absence of this fear means that God is excluded not only from the center of thought and calculation, but from the whole horizon of our reckoning. God is not in all our thoughts. Figuratively, he is not before our eyes. Now, what we have learned in Romans 1 makes this very startling. Because you remember Romans 1, we learn that God has made a vision of himself, of his person, clear in the creation. But what we learn here is that fallen man can choose not to keep God before his eyes. God's there everywhere you look. There's an evidence of God's power and creation, his his eternal existence. But you can choose to shut that down. You can choose not to keep God before your eyes. Contrast that, by the way, with what the true believer does. The psalmist in Psalm 16, 8 writes... I have set the Lord continually before me. That's what a believer does. You set the Lord before you. You realize you always live in his presence. You live coram Deo before the face of God. 
you realize that I can't go anywhere where he isn't. And when you set the Lord before your eyes, when you live in the awareness of his constant presence, it causes you to fear him. And if you fear him, then you will turn from evil and you will walk in obedience. The scripture always makes this connection. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 5, verse 29. God says this, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. Do you see the connection? You fear God, you keep his commandments. Job 1.1, Job was blameless, upright, fearing God, and therefore turning from evil. When you fear God, you turn from evil. Proverbs 3.7, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And these are just a few examples. When you really fear God, you turn away from evil and you obey and follow him. In fact, John Calvin writes, righteousness, that is a, a, a right life, a life that conforms to God's standard, righteousness flows from only one principle, the fear of God. You understand this at a practical level. Think for a moment about a specific sin that you struggle with. A specific sin. I can promise you this, there are certain people before whom and certain circumstances in which you would never commit that sin. You may think, well, you know, I don't have much control over that sin. Truth is, you do, because there are certain people and certain circumstances where you would never commit that sin. Perhaps it's before your spouse or in front of your parents. Maybe it's with your peers or perhaps it's with with spiritual leaders in your life. Maybe you would never commit that sin if I'm around. Now why? Why would you never consider committing your sin in the presence of that person? It's because you fear. You fear what would happen if that sin were exposed in that situation. But God always knows. And yet we still sin. Why? Because either we don't really believe that God sees... Or we don't really fear the God who sees. So a failure to fear God is the foundation of our depravity. But what exactly is the fear of God? What does that mean? Well, when Scripture speaks of the fear of God or the fear of the Lord, it's used in one of three ways. Let me give them to you briefly. First of all, it is used of true believers and the true worship of God. Sometimes, often in fact, when the Bible speaks about one who fears the Lord or those who fear the Lord, it's a description of all of those who have genuinely come to believe in the true God and to worship him. (laughs) It's shorthand for believer. Genuine believers fear God. That's why in Proverbs 9.10, we read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You don't, even, you don't even begin a relationship with God apart from the fear of God. Psalm 31, 19 goes, goes on to say that you can describe believers as those who fear God. 
Psalm 31, 19, how great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you. If you take refuge in God, in New Testament terms, if you take refuge in Jesus Christ, then you fear God. And if you fear God, you take refuge. Psalm 103, 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, on true believers. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and a book of remembrance was written before God for those who fear the Lord, who esteem his name. It's shorthand for true believers. Even in the New Testament, this is true. Revelation 19, verse 5, a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, that is his slaves, his doulos, you who fear him, both small and great. So scripture often uses the expression, those who fear the Lord, simply to identify those who have come to truly believe in the true God and to worship him. Let me put it to you very bluntly. If you don't fear God, you are not a true believer. You are not a Christian. The fear of the Lord is used secondly in scripture of reverence and awe for God. Reverence and awe. Now, we throw these words around, so let me give you a definition, just so we're clear. Webster's defines reverence as an attitude of deep respect tinged with awe, mixed with awe. So what's awe? Well, awe is an emotion variously combining dread, veneration, and wonder that is inspired by authority or by the sacred or by the sublime. It's dread, it's, it's, there's a fear mixed in with it, as well as wonder, and you're overwhelmed by the reality of this. This is how we're to respond to God. And, and sometimes when Scripture uses this expression, the fear of the Lord, it's talking about reverence and awe of the one true God. Let me give you a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 28, 58. Moses writes, you must be careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God. Fear him because of his awesome character. Be awed by God. Be filled with wonder as well as with legitimate fear. Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. And then the psalmist explains, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Listen, to fear God means you literally not only respect him, but you are, you are taken away with wonder, born away with wonder and fascination and veneration and adoration of his greatness. You're overwhelmed by God. Micah 2.5 speaks of Levi and says, Levi feared me, and then he explains, and stood in awe of my name. He, he was awed by what's true about me. This is what it means to fear God. 
It means to truly be moved in your heart and in your thoughts and in your spirit by the greatness of God. To fear God is to have an attitude of deep respect combined with a sense of wonder inspired by who God is and what he's done and frankly, what he could do if he wanted to do. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of his current series, Not Even One. Tom will bring you part 10 on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. Do join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.